All right, thanks, Aaron, for leading us in our song service today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you're not already there, Brad read that for us uh, just a little while ago. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 will be our main text today. Uh, before I get into this, quick reminder, what time is worship starting next Sunday and New Year's Day? 10 o'clock. All right, I already got one text asking when it's going to start, but that was a joke text. I don't mind if you text me, but I just wanted you, this to be well communicated to you. So the next two weeks, special start time. But for today, we're here. We're going to study Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Uh, the last few weeks, because this is Christmas time, we've been looking at the birth of Christ, the stories and the characters that surround the birth of Christ. I'm calling them key players. This is the beginning of God becoming a human being, the beginning of God's plan of salvation, and we're looking at the people that God chose to work through, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, the shepherds that we looked at last week, Mary and Joseph, which we'll talk some more about today, and these wise men. And to get us ready to reflect on this text and maybe do a little bit of life reflection, let me ask you two questions as we get started. The first question is, what are you seeking in life? Or as you see on the screen, it's worded like this, what or who are you seeking? That's kind of a deep philosophical type question if you really think about that, if you did some self-reflection in your own life. What are you really seeking in life? A few years ago, maybe about six years ago, I started noticing around town, like I saw it happen in the downtown square, I saw people at the park doing this, and I even saw somebody walking down my road after midnight one night. They all had their phones out, and they were searching for something. Like, they were looking through their phone, but it was like they were searching for something. I'm usually behind on the latest technology trends, so I had no idea what all these people were doing and what it was they were looking for. Finally, I asked somebody that knew, and they said, everybody's playing this new game called Pokemon Go. Did anybody play that game? Yeah, I'm looking at some of the adults around here, and you're just like, what? Okay, well, that's how I felt. This game where you could get an app, and you'd go around town, you follow these clues, and you'd find these little Pokemon characters. And apparently it was really popular, because I saw people all over the place doing this. They were searching for something. And when I ask you the question, what is it that you're seeking in life? That's the image that comes to my mind, is we're all walking around like that. It's like we're searching for something. We're seeking something. What? What are you seeking? Are you seeking happiness? Peace in your life? Are you seeking to make money? Are you seeking to make a name for yourself? Are you seeking security? Are you seeking your rights and your freedom? Like what is it, one of your deepest desires, your heart's desires, what is it that you're seeking? And hopefully, as you think about that, the real question would be, who are you seeking? The second question is, how far would you travel to find what it is that you're looking for? A few years ago, there was a, a preacher that was kind of a veteran preacher. He'd been around for a long time, and I was wanting to meet him in person. I emailed with him to see if he'd be available to have lunch with me someday. He gave me a date. He gave me a time. I drove two and a half hours to meet him for lunch. He met me from about 12 to 12.50, and then he had to leave, and then I drove two and a half hours back. Five-hour round trip to have a less than an hour lunch with somebody, but I was willing to drive that far uh, to meet that person. Now, five years later, would I still do that? No, <laughs> I probably wouldn't. I'm, I'm getting older, and those trips so take a lot out of me. In 2009, I, it was my first year as a youth minister getting ready to serve as a director for Netsis Camp. 
Yeah, Aaron's taking the kids. That's camp this coming summer, so stay tuned for that. I was, you know, as a director that year, we were getting ready to host the camp at Quartz Mountains Christian Camp in western Oklahoma. Anybody ever been there? Okay, it's a really long ways away. The only time I've ever been to western Oklahoma and the only time I will ever go there. But we were hosting uh, this camp there, and we wanted to make sure everything was ready. So we decided as a group of youth ministers that we would drive. It was over five hours to get there. We got up early one morning. We drove there. We did a walkthrough. We met the camp director. We made sure everything was ready to go and then drove five hours back. Over 10 hours on the road that day just for like an hour walkthrough. How far would you travel to find what it is that you're seeking? Some of you, and if you have a discussion with your small group today, you might have a fun discussion with this, but how far have you traveled to meet someone? Now, how far would you go? Do some self-reflection on that. You might discover something about yourself, and then you're also going to discover something about these wise men or these magi that we're going to study over the next few minutes. From Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start by reading verse 1 and 2, and then I'm going to talk about a few things. But before I read that, I'll tell you that, first of all, you only find the story of these wise men in the Gospel of Matthew. It's unique to Matthew. And Matthew gives these wise men more space in the text than he does the narrative of the birth of Jesus. So Matthew feels like there's something important about this story that we're reading today, about these wise men that we need to know. So let's take a few minutes to look into this. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? We have observed His star at its rising, and we have come to worship Him. Maybe that passage, those two verses, are familiar to you, because it is the Christmas time of year. But every time I come to a text, even if I've preached on it before, or I've studied it multiple times in my life, I want to ask some questions and just be honest with what I'm thinking. So here's a few questions that come to mind as I study this. Those are just two strange verses with not a lot of background. So who are these wise men? Where do they come from? Matthew says they come from the east. What is that? And why are these people who are outside of the Jewish religious system, why do they care about the one who's been born king of the Jews? You have the same questions? I mean, I think those are questions we could ask of this text and say, yeah, what is this? All about. So let me try to give you a few answers, but first of all, I want to point out that over the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of myths that have developed about these wise men. And so some of what I'm going to tell you may sound a little bit different about what tradition has told us through time. We have a lot of theories, we have a little bit of history, but I think Matthew is intentionally mysterious with the way he tells this. These wise men are, there's a mystery to them. And I'm not going to be able to solve everything. But let's start with that first question that I ask. Who are these guys? Uh, They're called the Magi. We also call them the wise men. Magi could refer to uh, magicians, astrologers, or those who interpret dreams. In the book of Daniel, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we first read this title, Magi, in Daniel chapter 2, when King Nebuchadnezzar was having these disturbing dreams. So he called Daniel and others in before his palace to help interpret these dreams, and the Magi were a part of that. That's where the name first appears. They were interpreting dreams. 
Many scholars believe that magis in this ancient world in the first century probably were hired by governments to be advisors to kings. Does that clear it up for you? That's still a little bit vague, but that gives us a little bit of an idea of maybe who they are. But where in the world did they come from? Did you notice what Matthew said? He said, these wise men came from the east to go to Jerusalem. They, just, they come from the east. Where is the east? Which direction is it? Point the, towards the east for me right now so I know that you know where the east is. Right, good. I would point that way because I'm just pointing to the right, but it, maybe it's that way. So I looked up the east from Jerusalem. I, this is a modern map. I, I put it on Google Maps and I just typed in Jerusalem and I zoomed out a little bit. This, you see where I circled it right there? There's Jerusalem and look to the east. I mean, modern day, you have Kuwait, you have Iraq, Iran, and then you keep going India, China. Like, how far does the East go? Well, I'm going to trust in some of the scholars that I've studied, and, and they believe that when Matthew says these guys came from the East, that it was probably Babylon, Persia, or somewhere in the Arabian Desert. And what other scholars have said is probably somewhere around where you see on the map right there, modern day Iran. So that's about maybe where they came from, from the east. So there's a little bit about who they are, where they came from, but why do they care? I mean, honestly, have you ever thought about that? Why do these strangers, foreigners, why would they travel so far to come find the one born king of the Jews? What about them cares about this? One theory is that uh, if you think back to the book of Daniel, I've already mentioned Daniel, when Daniel, and you know Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I think some of our Jump Street kids have been studying those stories the last few weeks. When these guys were taken into exile in Babylon many centuries before this, that there's probably a chance they would have brought copies of the Scripture with them. And while they were in Babylon for many decades, they would have left a lasting impact in Babylon. And so all these centuries later, it could be that these magi, these advisors to the kings, had copies of the Hebrew Scriptures and had their faith influenced by Daniel and others through the centuries. And maybe they had searched the Scriptures and that's what prompted them and maybe you know, God working on them as well to go find this one born king of the Jews. I don't know if you've ever heard that theory. It makes sense to me. I don't say that, we can't say 100% that that is exactly what's happening. Well, what we do know about these magi is that they are seekers. Remember that question I asked you at the beginning? What is it that you're seeking in life? These guys are seeking something. There's something deep down inside of them that says, you need to take this trip to go find this child. Now, how many, how many of them were there? You know? Was there three? I mean, you see in this picture, there's three. Uh, traditionally, we think there was three wise men we even have a song, We Three Kings. Well, as I've studied this, one of the things that's always pointed out is we don't know that there was three of them. There was three gifts that were presented. So through time, the tradition has been that there were three wise men. We don't know. There could have been a, a whole entourage. If these were dignitaries from another country, they probably traveled with a whole caravan. But, you know, our imagination, our minds, we think just three of them. There's probably more than that. Okay, there's a little bit of background. Does that clear everything up for you and all the questions you've ever had about these wise men? Maybe not, but it gives us an idea. What about this star? You know the song that Aaron just led us in? I requested that. Beautiful star of Bethlehem. 
As a song that Jim led for us two weeks ago, it's a Christmas-type song, this beautiful star of Bethlehem guiding the wise men on their way. Matthew tells us they saw the star at its rising, but what is this star? Again, many theories have been developed through time. Some people believe that it was when Saturn and Jupiter were in conjunction with each other. Some people believe it was a, a comet or a supernova. We don't really know. What we do know is the star operated like a GPS system for these wise men. They didn't have GPS back then. They didn't have Google Maps. But this star is what led them there. They follow the star. And when they show up in Jerusalem, so they're not in Bethlehem at first, they show up in Jerusalem, what's the question they ask? Where is the one that's been born King of the Jews? Now enters Herod the Great in verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, this question, he was frightened. Some translations say he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. Now, why would Herod, King Herod, be disturbed by this question? Because he's the king. That's his title. And these foreigners show up. Hey, where's the real king that's been born? Herod the Great. We may not know concrete evidence about the Magi. I've just kind of given you a few theories. What we do know historically is we know some things about King Herod, a.k.a. Herod the Great. Uh, he was not a full-blooded Jew, but he was uh, given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 37 B.C., and he reigned as the King of the Jews until 4 B.C. Herod the Great was known for really two main things, for his building projects and for killing people. He was a particularly, uh, uniquely violent ruler, even for that time. He did not like anybody threatening his power, and maybe you've heard this before, but out of all the 10 or 11 wives that he had, he only loved one of them, but he had her killed because he was afraid he could not trust her loyalty. And then on top of that, he had his mother-in-law killed. He had two of his sons killed because he wasn't sure if they were trying to threaten his power or not. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, once said about Herod the Great, it would be better to be one of his pigs than one of his sons. Because that's how crazy he was. That gives you an idea about who Herod was. He was involved with a lot of building projects, including rebuilding the temple, so he's known for building and killing. There's a really quick summary of Herod the Great. So he's threatened by this. He's frightened by it. In verse 4, it says, "...calling together all the chief priests and scribes," or chief priests and teachers of the law, "...he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born." He wants to know, and Steve, you pointed this out um, in your communion thoughts today. They knew. They knew the Scriptures. These teachers of law, the temple hierarchy, the religious leaders, they knew the Scriptures, and they didn't have to Google it. You know, a lot of times when you're preparing a lesson or you're just looking for a Bible verse, you might Google it, and then Google will tell you where to find it in Scripture. These guys didn't need to do that. They knew the prophecy. But one of the things that I want to point out now and point out at the end is that although they knew the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, did they go to Bethlehem? Well, we don't read anything in the text about them actually moving their feet to go see this child. They knew it intellectually, but it doesn't seem like they knew it in their heart. If the Magi, we call them the wise men, then looking at these verses right here, you might call Herod and the chief priests and the scribes the unwise men. Herod is threatened. And the chief priests and the religious leaders, they're not wise because there's no action behind their head knowledge of Scripture. 
But the answer that they give to Herod in verse 5 and 6, here's the prophecy. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, that's where he'll be born. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will who is to shepherd my people. This is a quote from uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and then a little phrase from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. That's the Scripture. That's what they know. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Verse 7 and 8, it says, Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. These wise men who've come from the east, now they get an audience with the king. That's a big deal. In verse 8 it says, Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and worship him. Now, quick quiz question. Does Herod really plan on going to worship Jesus? No. What is his intent? To kill him, right? You keep reading Matthew chapter 2. His intention is to eventually kill him, and he's going to try to kill all the boys two and under in that region. So he sends these wise men on their way. In verse 9, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them the star that they had seen at its rising until, uh, until it stopped over the place where the child was. So basically, the star is now reintroduced to us, the star of Bethlehem. And if you notice, it seems like in the story that the star initially read, led them to Jerusalem, and they get to Jerusalem, and they're asking about where the king will be born they're introduced to this, to Micah 5 2, 2 Samuel 5 2. And then after they learn the scripture and read the scripture, then the star seems to reappear. So it's not just the star that guided them there. Obviously, God is working behind all of this, but it's also the star and scripture. In verse 10, when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. Why were they overwhelmed with joy? Because they've been seeking. This child, this one who has been born king of the Jews, and they have finally arrived at the place where he is. It's a long journey. The one who they've been seeking, they are now right outside the door. And before they enter the door and see Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and I wonder if after all of this travel and they walk in to a house and they see this very humble circumstance, I wonder if they were a little bit surprised by it. Which, by the way... Mary and Joseph are in a house at this point. They're not at the manger, so we believe the Magi probably did not come the night Jesus was born. And if that messes up your image of a nativity scene, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of telling you, like, that's the details that we know. But I wonder, what did Mary and Joseph think about this? Remember last week we talked about how on the night Jesus was born... These angels showed up to the shepherds out in the field. These shepherds are these outcast people, and, and they're the first ones to show up and visit. That probably would have been an odd visit for Mary and Joseph. So naturally, when I'm reading these stories and I'm kind of reflecting on my own life, you know, I'm thinking back to the time when my children were born. This is a picture of the day that my son was born. So for both of my children, like the whole birthing process is the most intense thing I've ever witnessed in my life. Uh, and, and one of the things that made it so hard was that you're sleep deprived. When both of my kids were born, we were going on no sleep. And if you think about this, I feel bad for young parents because I've lived through it. You're going on no sleep, you're completely sleep deprived. 
You go through this traumatic event, and then they hand you a child and say, here, it's yours. Take care of it, feed it, protect it. Don't drop it, even though you have no sleep and you're dizzy. I mean, that's a really insane thing to do to ask of parents. About six weeks after Christian was born, we wound up back in the hospital. He had RSV. We spent about a week in the hospital. And again, it was another one of those weeks of very little sleep. But occasionally people would stop by from local church to visit us, which was nice, but it's hard to entertain visitors when you're going on no sleep and you're worried about your child. He's still an infant. Uh, I remember one day I was going on two hours of sleep. And that afternoon we got Christian to sleep on his little hospital bed. And I laid down on this weird recliner thing that they had in there. It's like they try to make you uncomfortable in these hospital rooms. And I laid down and I finally fell asleep. And then right about that time I heard a knock on the door. We had more visitors. And and I popped up out of that recliner. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I just fell asleep. Somebody else has come to see us. But they brought food. They brought gift cards. I was like, it's okay that you came because you came bearing gifts. I don't know if Mary and Joseph were sleep deprived. I don't know what they were feeling. I don't know how old Jesus was at this point. But maybe I have an idea because I've been through similar experiences. They've already entertained these shepherd visitors, and now they're going to entertain some more visitors, and I guess it's okay because these magi, they come bearing gifts. And verse 11 says, On entering the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they knelt down and they worshipped him. They, in the Gospel of Matthew, they are the first ones to worship Jesus. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's talk about these gifts for just a second. There's an old uh, commentator named William Barclay, and he points out the significance behind each one of these gifts. So we could talk about gold. That's something that we can, we're somewhat familiar with even still today because we know that gold has value. And it could be that when Mary and Joseph and Jesus have to flee to Egypt, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 2, how did they survive financially? Maybe they used some of the gold that was given them to help them survive. But a gold is a gift that you would give to a king in the ancient world. If you came into the presence of a king, you better come uh, not empty-handed but bearing a gift, probably something preferably made out of gold. Jesus is the king of kings. Even though he's just a child laying in this house, these magi know this is the king of kings, and so they are bringing him gold. That's a gift for a king. But then they also bring him frankincense. That This incense would have been a... A gift probably for a priest, as William Barclay points out, because priests would have used this incense as they made their meal offerings and things like that. Jesus is the great high priest. So it's a gift fitting for the king of kings. It's a gift fitting for the great high priest. But the third gift is myrrh, which is just a weird thing to say publicly. Myrrh. You know, that, I don't, that's a weird thing to pronounce. But what, that's a weird gift to bring to a kid. I don't know uh, if you have somebody in your family that especially if you're a kid, that you know when you open the gift, it's going to be a strange gift, and you, you have to do a fake smile and say thank you. You know, maybe we all have people like that in our families. I've been that person before giving uh, younger people gifts, and it's just a weird gift for them. You know, you just find something around the house, and you wrap it, and you give it to them, and, uh, you know, you gave them a gift or whatever. Myrrh was a gift like that. It's a strange gift. It had two main purposes. You could mix it with wine to help dull the pain for people who were hurting. When Jesus was on the cross, this is what they offered him. Myrrh could also be used and mixed with aloes and other things like that to help prepare a body for burial. So William Barclay points out that myrrh was a gift that you would give to someone who would 
who's going to die. Which seems like a weird gift to give to a child, but it makes sense because we know that Jesus will be the crucified one. He will be the slaughtered lamb. These gifts are appropriate for the King of Kings, for the great high priest, and the crucified Messiah. In verse 12, it says, Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. A little bit of significance, I guess, on a side note to this is they go back a different route. And once you meet Jesus, you never travel the same path again, or at least you shouldn't. You meet Jesus and you go a different path. Uh, Max Licato in his book, Because of Bethlehem, he points out this contrast between King Herod and the Magi. And I want to share some of those contrasts with you. He said, for one, they may share the same chapter, but they did not share the same heart. Because the Magi traveled a really long way seeking Jesus, but Herod, he didn't even leave his city, he didn't leave his palace. They bring their gifts, their treasures to Jesus, but Herod wants to kill Jesus. These Magi got to meet Jesus, see God incarnate, God in the flesh, God the Son, but Herod, he saw no one but himself. He was self-obsessed. And because of that, if you look at it just from the Gospel of Matthew, the Magi were the first ones to worship Jesus. Herod was the first one to reject Jesus. So, I go back to these two questions that I started with. What is it that you're seeking in life? Honestly, ask yourself that. Who are you seeking? And if Jesus is the answer to that question, because usually when you're in church or Bible class, Jesus is always the answer. That's what we say. But if Jesus is really who you are seeking, how far would you go to find who it is that you're looking for? That's, I think, the lesson that we can learn from these wise men. As they set an example for us of what it means to seek after Jesus and keep seeking Him and worship Him. Uh, earlier this week, we went to a funeral in Mount Pleasant of somebody that we were once very close with. And on the way home, I was telling Jessica in the car about this sermon, and I mentioned something about the old saying about the wise men. You know what it is? It's like a bumper sticker saying. You know what I'm thinking of? Wise men... Still seek Him. Right? Jessica said she saw it on a church sign in Mount Pleasant. I've seen it on bumper stickers. It's kind of a cliche thing to say, but there's a lot of truth to it. What do we learn from these magi, from these wise men? Well, maybe the lesson that carries on into today, into our modern world, is wise men still seek Him. And it's not like you just seek Him, you find Him once, and it's over with. Whatever stage of life that you're in, keep seeking there's another saying that the longest road in the world, you know what it is? The longest road in the world is from the head to the heart. Have you heard that before? If you think about the chief priests and the scribes in this story, intellectually in their head, they knew the Scriptures, they knew where the Messiah was going to be born, but apparently it didn't sink into their hearts because they never moved from Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem to find this child. The road from the head to the heart is a long road. Maybe that describes you today. I mean, if I could ask you, who are you in the story? Are you like Herod, where you're concerned with your own little kingdom? Are you like the chief priests and the scribes who 
know it intellectually, but you haven't let it become a part of who you are, become a part of your life? Or are you like the wise men who are you on the, the constant, lifelong pursuit of seeking Jesus and you will go to whatever lengths you need to to find Him? Learn that lesson from the wise men. If we can help you find Jesus today, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our shepherds. We'd be glad to pray with you. Let's stand and sing.